The news did not stop, despite the fact that everyone is still recovering from a week in Vegas. We're going to talk to Bug Crowd's Jason Haddix on all the ways his company is giving researchers a chance to freely find bugs. Hitting your eardrums with all the security news you can handle. Welcome to this week's edition of Securiosity. Hey, what's up everyone? Greg here, again. Latest edition of Securiosity. Jen, you fully recovered from the fun in Vegas? Nope, took a red eye home Sunday night and been going nonstop since. That sounds rough. <laughs> rough. It's taken me till about Wednesday to get back up to 100%. I can't imagine what a red eye back on a Sunday night mm. would feel like. So we thought the InfoSec world was going to take a week off, but uh, I don't think the fun has stopped. There has been a ton of news this week. No one seems to want to take a summer vacation, be it in Vegas, D.C., or anywhere else in between. Speaking of Vegas, we taped an interview with Bug Crowd's Jason Haddix, where we talk about all of the work Bug Crowd has put into making sure that freelance security researchers are free to legally do their work, learn new skills, and earn money in the process. But first, let's go into all the news we've been talking about. The national conversation on election security has been top of mind since the voting village at DEF CON kicked off last week. U.S. officials and security researchers sought common ground during the conference in raising awareness on potential vulnerabilities in election equipment. The goal was to foster a more transparent conversation about those vulnerabilities without spreading undue public fear about them. But in reality, that's not what happened. While certain election officials from California and Colorado expressed their willingness to learn from what they'd witnessed at the voting village, the National Association of Secretaries of State, NASS, released a statement criticizing the village as a pseudo-environment which in no way replicates state election systems, networks, or physical security. That statement did not sit well with Jake Braun, a technology investment consultant who helped organize the village. Braun kicked off a discussion on election security at DEF CON by snarling into a microphone, F you, you effing Luddites, in response to NASS. Greg, my question, is this what everyone hoped for from the voting village? I really don't know. I did not expect to hear the guy running the voting village to start cursing out. Uh, elected officials, uh, but hey. Kind of uh, fun to watch. Yeah, kind of fun to watch, uh, kind of surprising to hear happen, but the conversation around this afterwards seemed to be, I don't know, a, a little bit off the mark. Um, look, there were some very smart people, Matt Blaze, Joe Hall, uh, among others, uh, Alex Halderman, that spend a lot of time working with this stuff and did a great job during the weekend, uh, did some really good and important things, uh, getting out the word on how susceptible this equipment is to um, hacking and the vulnerabilities that are within them. However, afterwards, one of the big things that I did see this week that really, really bothered me was a video that was circulating that showed a hacker popping open a machine and showing how vulnerable it was, and she did it in under two minutes. Basically what she did, she found a way to unlock the machine, said that you could pick the lock on the machine with a ballpoint pen, and basically it meant that democracy is now basically a 50-50 gamble if it, if it pays off. I believe that she said that she was very threatened or this was a big threat to U.S. democracy, which that right there kind of doesn't sit well with me that like – just because you can open up a voting machine, one voting machine, does not mean that there is this bigger threat to democracy. Yes, that is very problematic that a voting machine that is probably still being used in all different types of voting precincts around the country, uh, 
The fact that it can be popped open that fast, yeah, that's a problem. But from a practical standpoint... It's not like those voting machines are just sort of sitting there alone. And, and that's what I'm getting at. That's not a practical situation in which you're going to find you know, people on election day that are going to be standing in your election precinct banging on machines to open them up in order to hack them. Let's say that situation did occur where somebody successfully managed to pop open a machine and manipulate some votes. Let's take Fairfax County where, where I live right now. That would be one machine. You're talking maybe anywhere from 600 to 1,200 votes changed in one machine. Yes, very problematic, not a huge threat to democracy. A bigger threat to democracy is, I don't know, things that we've seen in the past elections, like a nation state taking advantage of the social media platforms that are popular in America and sowing them full of propaganda that then influences the way people vote. That is a much more damaging thing and a much bigger threat to democracy than somebody that's able to jerk open a machine with a ballpoint pen. And that it just doesn't sit well with me because I think that there are some people that are very smart and have a very, very uh, important message that they're trying to disseminate when it comes to election vendors and their need to update their machines. Extrapolating that message out to the common citizen does nothing but spread fear and ultimately undermine the the voting process that we're trying to protect here. So I think that everybody needs to concentrate on getting the right message out to the right people and figuring out a better way to work with this. I don't think the conversation's in a good place right now. And showing that the conversation, you know, isn't in a good place, but there are good people working on the apparatuses that need to be fixed. Nearly 30% of House of Representatives have websites that have serious shortcomings, and that is compared to just 4% of Senate candidates, according to new research that came out of DEFCON. Joshua Franklin, a former NIST official, and his research team found that voter registration web applications, which are commonly assumed to be vulnerable, are in fact pretty secure, with 70% earning an A grade or higher. Franklin's research, presented at DEF CON, is a reminder of the disparity in resources facing House and Senate campaigns as the midterms approach. This comes as two companies announced this week, McAfee and Silence, that they're offering cloud security tools and antivirus tools, respectively, to campaigns and offices that run election websites. Jen, let's concentrate on that last part, given your background. Seems like a savvy marketing move to get a new customer base for your products by offering them for free, no? Absolutely, right? So they're putting themselves, one, in the news, and, you know, and two, as we talk about election security constantly... Um, in the news every single day over and over again, they get to put their names out there both times protecting the American public. So sure, um, you know, that said, is this going to make it safer? Who knows? I think it's up to the House and these Senate candidates to protect their websites. And look, they're doing it for free. McAfee and Silence are not the only companies that are doing this. Google's doing it. Microsoft, I believe, to some extent is doing it. Cloudflare is doing it. I'm sure that there are others there too. And while I do see it a little bit as a marketing move, which hey, marketing's part of your business. That is what it is. I just wish that there was more of an effort to make sure that candidates and voting offices were using them. So hopefully they're doing that outreach as well on top of the marketing. So CyberScoop reported months ago that officials in the Trump White House were looking to eliminate PPD-20, an Obama-era directive that guides the approval process for government-backed cyber attacks. 
Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that the president had signed off on the directive's elimination. Officials have been tight-lipped since the story broke. But if the directive is in fact gone, it gives officials the ability to be more offensive in nature when it comes to cyber attacks. This move hasn't been received with praise within the intel community, with senior U.S. intelligence officials expressing concerns over what rescinding the directive will mean for their own active computer spying missions. We'll have more as it develops. Greg, we weren't around in May, so tell us what's going on here. So it has developed, uh, and officials haven't been so tight-lipped now. There are a lot of people that are in their feelings about PPV-20, which might be the only time a sentence like that might ever be uttered. But, no, this really touched a nerve. Um, So, yeah, PPD 20 is a directive that kind of bridged between the Bush and Obama administrations. It went on the books under Obama, but it guides the approval process for government-backed cyber attacks, like you had said. Um, It's basically just a way to make sure that all of the boxes are checked two, three, four times when it comes to what a USA-led cyber attack would look like and what it would affect. And this is what officials have said to us since this story has broke is that by rescinding PPD-20, I don't necessarily know that eliminating is the best word. Rescinding PPD-20 means that there is a little bit less red tape. However, the people that are deciding on what to attack need to make sure that they are sure that they are weighing all of the consequences that go into an attack because you never know from a diplomatic perspective or a different military perspective what you're going to kick up when you launch a cyber attack. So by rescinding this, it may quote-unquote streamline things, but then really let's tear away what that means. It just means that we can be a little bit louder and a little bit more offensive when we do want to go attack somebody. I mean, less red tape sounds awesome, but someone really should be thinking about the big picture here. Sometimes I think we're not. Yeah. Some of the people that we've talked to have said, yeah, okay, there are some things about PBD 20 that needed to be revisited and needed to be changed so we can act uh, a little bit better when it comes to our cyber attacks and, and being offensive in nature. However, like you said, being really, really careful would probably be the best way to go about this. So to be continued, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this, whether that there is another presidential directive that comes from this. But right now, it just looks like we're trying to pare away everything possible to launch a cyber attack at the drop of a hat, which is not the best way to go about it. States' preparation for the 2018 midterm elections ramped up a notch this week with a three-day exercise that was hosted by DHS. The exercise let state and local officials practice repelling cyber attacks, including spear phishing, denial of service attacks, and the exploitation of state and county boards that run election networks. 44 states and federal agencies with advanced cyber capabilities, such as the NSA and Cyber Command, took part in the exercise, and experts say this practice is essential to ensuring that election security is significantly boosted before the midterms, which happen in less than three months' time. Jen, my question to you, does it seem like three months is too little too late? Depends on how the practice went. Yeah, I just think that the three-month window, like, if you're talking three months out for 
nation state level cyber attacks. <laughs> I, I think that you're uh, a little behind the eight ball at this point. I mean, we've seen numerous reports that. No, we should probably be testing this every three months, not just three right. Months continuous. I mean, how right. many how many times do we talk about enterprises having a continuous security solution Absolutely. and making sure that yeah. everything is up to date? Probably should be a state of mind for election services. Just just a thought. From D.C. to San Francisco, after a tumultuous few months, Uber has a new chief trust and security officer, Matt Olson, who is a former co-founder of IronNet Cybersecurity and former general counsel of the NSA. The search to fill the position began last November when former CSO Joe Sullivan and a slate of security executives left the company following a breach exposing data of 57 million customers and the company and accusations of a $100,000 cover-up. Hiring Olson is one of the most significant steps the ride-sharing company has taken in shifting leadership since the incident. The addition of a trust to Olson's title is Uber's push to emphasize that the hire is part of a new chapter in the company's history. Good move? I, I think so. I mean, this had to be a – it didn't have to be a slam dunk for Uber, but it needed to be safe. And somebody like Matt who helped – founded Ironnet Cybersecurity with General Keith Alexander and was the former general counsel of the NSA. I think that is going to satisfy people that are watching Uber and people that are on the board uh, at Uber as well. I mean, you're never going to go wrong with somebody that is attached to the NSA, at least from an optics perspective. I mean, look, he could be – it could be General Keith Alexander himself that is running uh, Uber's security office, hackers are still going to try to hack Uber and they're still going to try to mess with Uber just like they're going to try to mess with any high-profile company. So yeah, it's a good move, but Uber's still going to have a target on its back based on what we've seen. However, I, I, I think that this is a good hire and it's a great hire. yeah, this is a good piece of PR, if nothing else, for a company that desperately needs it. And honestly, exposing the data of 57 million customers is not really that off of whatever other companies. Right. We've seen. The cover-up's a little weird. Right. The bug bounty was a little weird, and that number of customers that was exposed is among the higher numbers. But, I mean, look, Sony, Target, Home Depot, Equifax, we could go on for a while. Like like you're saying, this stuff happens, and I think this is a good move to help the company recover. So researchers at Trend Micro recently discovered a high-risk zero-day exploit against the latest versions of Windows and Internet Explorer in malicious web traffic, the security firm announced on Wednesday. Microsoft issued patches as part of Patch Tuesday, and the vulnerability is exploited by visiting a malicious web page or opening a malicious Microsoft Word document rendered with Internet Explorer. IE is still actually the second most popular web browser after Google Chrome, and it's also especially popular in enterprise environments, which means exploits can be potentially used to attack businesses and other large organizations. Jen, does it surprise you that IE is still the second most widely used web browser? It doesn't, it doesn't. So I know when I have to do something company-related with some sort of update, I have to use Internet Explorer. So I imagine that every single government agency and every single state agency sort of looks like that too. Yeah, I mean, we can roll our eyes about this, but I I do think that this is really an enterprise bug. And and this is, yeah, it's an enterprise problem and it's still really, really important. Because while you and I might use Chrome or Firefox or anything else that 
is out there. I mean, I can't tell you the last time that I touched Internet Explorer, but I still understand that this is a pretty bad bug and this will affect right. enterprises on a very, very large scale. So good on Microsoft for getting this out there as part of Patch Tuesday. And if you haven't patched it yet, tell your people, tell your sysadmins, tell your engineers, tell anybody with with uh, you know administrative capabilities, patch this. This is definitely worth paying attention to. The year of that speculative execution vulnerability continued this week when researchers unveiled another finding known as foreshadow. The problem, which lays in Intel's SGX security technology, may allow hackers to access private data, including passwords and other files. The data can be stolen across virtual machines or applications on the same device. Detection of foreshadow is unlikely, but no exploitation has been found in the wild. A testament to both the industry's fixes as well as the fact that easier avenues of attack remain open. Greg, this seems to have been handled pretty well, no? Well, I mean, they've had some practice based on the Spectre and Meltdown stuff that we saw at the beginning of the year. But Intel uh, said, you know, at the beginning of the year when the Spectre and Meltdown stuff happened, that you were going to see more and more variants pop up into the wild. Um, And... Here we are with with foreshadow. This is you know something that I think is going to plague the the chip manufacturers and the hardware manufacturers for you know for some time to come. I mean, this is the fourth one. There's probably going to be more that pop up because hey, this stuff is complicated. We want to be able to have our machines work as fast as possible. In order to do that, we need to cut corners, and that's what speculative execution basically is. It's it's teaching the processors to assume what is going to happen with a process. And if we're going to automate that stuff, sometimes this type of stuff is going to happen. So the more and more we see new hardware roll out, the stuff is going to fall by the wayside. And I think that it's also good that the researchers were up front and said, we, look, we haven't seen this in a while, but you need to be aware of this. That's always a good thing because we can apply the fix and move on and make sure that everything is okay while understanding that this is not something that you need to be aware of from uh, an attack perspective. So, yeah, I thought it was handled pretty well. I guess boring news and cybersecurity is good news. Yeah, absolutely. The less that something seems like it's on fire is definitely a good thing. Jen, all a hacker would need is the number to a vulnerable fax machine to penetrate an IT network according to an exploit detailed by Checkpoint. New research the company put out shows that hackers can exploit fax machines via the VAX protocol to breach a network and exfiltrate data from other devices on it. A hacker would use a combination of a custom script developed for the exploit as well as the leaked Eternal Blue NSA exploit, and the target network doesn't even have to be connected to the internet. Uh, HP, which makes a lot of fax and printer combined hardware, released a patch for the device that Checkpoint used in its research, but the company says that fax machines from any vendor, including those all-in-one printers, could be vulnerable. Jen. Did you figure that your fax machine could be hacked, and that is even if you still use one? I think anything connected into a network of your company's data should get unplugged unless you're absolutely using it every day and you know it's protected. So I'm not surprised that who's using a fax machine anymore. Yeah, the thing that is very, very interesting to me is the fact that this doesn't necessarily even have to be connected to the internet. If you go on CyberScoop and read the story into this, we do have a video on the way that this sort of executes and it's literally just dialing in and 
then once the dial is sent back to the command and control, it moves across a network. That That's really, really interesting to me. I mean, look, we just talked about easier ways in the in the last story that we did, easier ways for attackers to move across the network. Yes, I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a line of cyber criminals lining up to hack fax machines wow. when when phishing and, and you know stuff like that works so much better. But at the same time, this is really, really interesting that you just need a fax number and you don't necessarily need credentials or sense. a machine connected to the internet. Because you think about it, right? All of our phone connections are are voice over IP, probably in an enterprise setting. That's connected in, so it, it looks like right. just a phone line, but it is right. connected to your computer in some way. And I think network. who needs to pay attention to this are the small and medium businesses that actually do use fax machines. Like I think mm-hmm. r- realtors, for example, realtors do a lot of business over fax machine when it comes to contracts or you know other financial stuff that goes into real estate deals. There's stuff like that faxed all the time. So if you have a fax machine out there that's like that, you, you might want to pay attention to this and figure out a way to get a fix. doesn't matter how much money a big enterprise spends on their type of security. It's their smallest vendor that's spending less money. That's how vulnerable they are. So more checkpoint research. Major mobile app developers, including Google itself, left numerous major Android apps vulnerable to the man-in-the-disk intrusion, a potent attack surface for Android apps that can potentially allow silent installation of malicious apps, denial of service, code injects, and cause crashes. Apps like Google Translate, Google Voice to Text, and Yandex Translate were compromised and crash. Google is fixing their apps, researchers say, a long-term fix requires fundamental changes in Android itself. Greg, can you explain how the man-in-the-disk attack works? So the man-in-the-disk attack, it allows a hacker to interfere with Android apps' data in external storage. Uh, and external storage is the type of storage that is typically used to share data between applications. Think about when you let your Facebook interact with your photo library. Okay. Things like that. So in this instance, the hacker is positioned in uh, the external storage and intercepts or can alter conversations between app on the targeted phone. So the intrusion occurs if like a user downloads like one of those free flashlight apps that gets talked about, like outside of the Google Play Store. And then an exploit script grants permission to that external storage and in in the actual code or on a user interface, it just looks like a normal looking request. Like the user just has to grant it and that's that. You wouldn't know unless you were like high level. But after that, a hacker then could monitor and potentially move data between those apps in the external storage. And even if external storage isn't following the right Android guidelines, that's even worse because then an attacker can get in the middle there and sort of inject code and i'm losing you i can tell that i'm no losing you but i already. just keep thinking who's downloading a free flashlight app well no th- and it, this happens all the time because of the way that android runs their app store you can download android apps without going into the google play store it's not the way that apple's walled garden works so it, like amazon has so its own it's all, android store okay. so it can be a mess and yeah. speaking of that let, let's get into it because i will give you a great example of how uh, hackers exploit this. In Android, big Android news this week is that the beta version uh, APK for Fortnite 
landed this week, and it has cybersecurity experts warning that the move will make Android users more vulnerable to hackers by pointing them away from the protection of the Google Play Store. The main concern is that hackers will disguise malware as Fortnite and trick users into downloading fake and malicious files. This tactic is used outside of Fortnite. This is the big way that Android is very, very vulnerable. And this will expose users to a lot more attacks. And sure enough, that's what happened. Craig Williams, a security researcher at Cisco Talos, tweeted earlier this week that nearly a third of all new Android malware he's seen this week revolved around Fortnite APKs. So, Jen, can you remember seeing a bigger layup for hackers in your life? This is amazing. Why are people not going through the Google Play Store? Well, okay, so that's the thing with Fortnite. Fortnite decided, the the Fortnite developers decided that they weren't going to put the app in the Google Play Store because of money reasons. They, They did the mouth and found that they were going to lose, not lose, but Google was going to get like 50 million based off of the interactions that they were going to have with the Google Play Store. So Epic and Google, Epic turned to Google and said, you know what, we're all right, we're going to send users to our own website. However, most people know to go to the Google Play Store to find something. So now when you go to the Google Play Store and search for Fortnite, you actually get a message that says, no, you can't get that here. It doesn't say where you can get it, but it says that you, can, you can't get it through the Google Play Store. So then it sends the normal people out on a wild goose hunt to find the actual game. And Look, not everybody is savvy as you or I or the researchers that we talk to. So if somebody gets a weird text from somebody that's like, hey, Fortnite's here, and it's not Fortnite. It's some type of malicious data. That's that's what everybody is so worried about. And that's what's happening. I mean, Craig tweeted about it that a third of all new Android malware this week. I mean, this, this really was a layup for hackers. You take one of the most really popular is. video yeah. games on the planet right now and just throw it out there to the wild – I'm actually shocked that that number's not higher, like that it's not half or two-thirds because it is such a big attack surface because so many people love playing Fortnite. I would Fortnite. rather pay more for Fortnite than worry about whether or not it was getting high. Right, and that's also, that's also the thing, that it's a free game on top of it. So the fact – it really is it, – it is a perfect There's storm so for anybody that – is looking to take advantage of the security flaws in Android's operating system. Nothing's free. (laughs) And if you find something on a website that is 20% less than everyone else, don't buy it. Buy it on a website now. (laughs) Okay, so Jen, now to your favorite mini-segment. We have this week's funding lightning round. Two companies this week got some money. Uh, Exabeam, a company that provides a security information and event management platform, raised $50 million in Series D funding, bringing its total funding to $115 million. Uh, the company says that increasing complexity of network infrastructures is driving demand for these types of products. Since the amount of data that can be logged for security purposes is skyrocketing, Exabeam competes with Splunk, Securonix, MPOW, others out there. And then also a company based in Oregon, Twistlock, uh, their platform secures cloud-native environments, raised $33 million in Series C funding, bringing its total VC investment to $63 million. That platform is meant for managing vulnerabilities, setting up firewalls, and complying with industry standards when it comes to setting up cloud-native, containerized, and serverless systems. Which one of these sounds more interesting to you, Jen? I don't think either one of them is very interesting. Ouch! Um, oh, God. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, if you, they raise a ton of capital... You know, they're certainly leaders in their industry. Um, you know, Twistlocks using containers, that's a little bit more interesting. But, 
you know, by the time they raise as much capital, you know, we're just now on a, on a watch for them to get acquired. Do you really think that that what goes into that? Because that's interesting that you say that it's not like these companies are almost boring a little bit. And from a VC perspective, don't you find that you want to invest in what's novel? You do, but not at this stage, right? So at like a, a series C or a series A, maybe even a series B, you know, you are looking for that novel, you're, you're investing in innovation, you're investing in team. By the time you're getting to a series D, you're investing in, um, you know, really their financial statements. You're really thinking about sort of profit and loss and margins. Um, and if they're going to make enough money and is there still enough market for them to capture, um, so you're not really anymore thinking about um, the technology per se. Certainly you're looking at it, um, but you're spotting that it works. You're spotting that they're really not going to make a lot of changes. Um, and it's just sort of like just a normal, normal thing. It's like investing in, um, I don't know, Uber today versus Uber, you know, years ago. So you're looking for growth, but you're looking at growth at the ground level at this point. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're certainly going to grow, but they're not, you know, it's really at a, can we get um, these companies acquired is, is sort of what we're looking at now. Um, you know, so none of this stuff is going to be that novel. There's going to be probably dozens of other companies competing with them. But if we were looking at, you know, that first, you know, $5 million in, then it's really interesting. Hack the Marine Corps, the latest bug bounty program for the Department of Defense and cybersecurity firm HackerOne was announced last week. The program, which will run through August 26th, is intended to find vulnerabilities in the Marine Corps' public-facing websites. The bug bounty program was born out of the Hack the Pentagon, that much talked about partnership with HackerOne and the DOD's Defense Digital Service. Currently, there are six government bug bounty programs covering the Pentagon, U.S. Army, Air Force, the DOD's Defense Travel System, and now the Marine Corps. Greg, DOD can't get enough of the bug bounties, can they? No, they seemingly can't, but that's a good thing. The military has a huge attack vector, and they need to figure out ways to protect low-hanging fruit. So, um, look, they're going to do all that they can to make sure that other people that want to help out can find that low-hanging fruit. I really think this is a model that should perpetuate across the government. I know there's been talk of doing it at the State Department and at DHS. I know GSA has their own. But the thing about the State Department and DHS, and we've talked about this before, is that there's almost the need to put it into a bill to have it exist, which I don't think is the way that it needs to be done. Like, I think that these vulnerability disclosure programs, and if they want to be a bug bounty program or they actually want to rip off a check if somebody finds a a vulnerability, I think that just needs to be a thing that they procure in the same way that they procure a laptop or an AV system or a mobile device manager. Like, it just needs to be almost like a commodity IT thing. Like, I don't understand the need to really make it like a lawful thing. So, um, yeah, this is a model that is being replicated over and over and over again at the DOD, and I think they're doing a really, really good job with it. Uh, I just wish that that model kind of extrapolated out to the full of government or even like election infrastructure. I think that there are some novel ways that election infrastructure could use what's going on at the DOD as far as bug bounty programs kind of apply it to what they're doing. Just a thought. You're allowed to steal that, listeners, I swear. (laughs) It's totally going to happen. So with that 
It's a good segue into our conversation with Jason Haddix of Bug Crowd. Uh, Jason talked to us about all of the things going on at Bug Crowd over the last couple months. They've had some really interesting announcements when it comes to helping companies navigate the legal side of vulnerability disclosure and some other platforms that allow vulnerability researchers to expand their knowledge platform and help out all the companies that are standing up bug bounty programs. And as an added bonus, Jason was actually in the meeting with Elon Musk. Elon was out at DEF CON talking to a bunch of researchers, and Jason sat in and talked to us about what he got to talk to Elon Musk about. So check it out. Okay, we're here with Jason Haddix, the VP of Trust and Security at Bug Crowd. We are up in the Bug Crowd suite at DEF CON. Jason, thanks for taking some time to talk to us. Let's jump right into it. Bug Crowd has had a busy month. Uh, the company's announced two new tools. Let's start with Disclose.io. What is that? Sure. Disclose.io is a set of templates for legal policies relating to responsible disclosure and bug bounty programs. So. Basically what you have is you have this giant community of hackers now that we've grown into that is really trying to do the right thing. And uh, when you're trying to do the right thing as a researcher, and I'm a researcher myself, sometimes uh, a company that doesn't have a bug down in your disclosure program uh, or uh, any means of contact, it can be really frustrating and scary to submit those vulnerabilities to that company because you never know how they'll react. They might pursue legal action, they might send cease and desist. There's all kinds of bad outcomes that have happened in our history. Uh, Disclosed.io is a, is a template that you know, companies can adopt uh, anywhere, any sector can adopt this set of templates that uh, adds protections if you post it on your page for hackers uh, from the DMCA laws, from CFAA, a whole bunch of prosecution methods. It basically just says if your research was in good faith um, and, uh, and you're doing security testing uh, as part of our responsible disclosure program or bug bounty program, we will not pursue legal action. We offer you what's called safe harbor. Um, and so it's something that's been needed for a long time. A, a researcher out of Berkeley named Amit, she's, uh, she's done a ton of talks on it. It gained groundswell this year, this idea that we really need to standardize it. And as soon as Casey Ellis, our CTO and founder, heard about it, uh, we got behind it pretty quickly. Uh, it's absolutely a great idea, and it's open source for everyone to use. So that's kind of the gist of it. I'm wondering about the genesis of this tool. We've seen some bigger companies in the healthcare and automotive space warm up to the disclosure process. Do you see tools like this further opening up the process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, really, even sometimes the, the legal, uh, my term is legal spaghetti, right? It gets really complicated when dealing with hackers and digital copyright laws. Those can apply to some hacking instances if you know, you're, you're reverse engineering software. So there's a lot of intricacies to how the legal stuff works. So um, we did a lot of analysis to make it as boilerplate as possible that can fit into many verticals, right? It could fit into automotive, it could fit into healthcare, it could fit into any IoT vendor, uh, definitely software, right? Um, so we work to make it very generic while still being uh, in-depth enough to cover you know, the hackers and, and the people who are gonna do security research. And then the other thing that we wanted to ensure as part of the project was uh, a lot of researchers are, are not English as a first language. Um, and so the, the language used in it is not normal legal language. It's, it's very clear and easy to understand I mean, that's what we wanted to, to basically put out there was something that was uh, easily consumable. So. so talking about those researchers that are on the platform, um, let's talk a little bit more in depth about them. What do you see driving the people that use uh, the bug crowd platform? Is it just purely money driven or is it a competition or is it a combination of the two? How, how have you seen things progress? It's, it's all of the above, honestly. But uh, mostly, you know, 
the bounty structures are are a way for people to make extra money to supplement their income. So the bounties are really popular, and that's where researchers will spend a lot of time. But we also have programs uh, that don't offer any money. They're just responsible disclosure programs. And the gamification that we've created and the leaderboards that we've created uh, really incite a lot of competition, right? If you think about hacking, there hasn't really been other ways other than the DEF CON CTF and some, some regional CTFs associated conference. Uh, there's not really a way to compare yourself. And this is what actually drew me to this was um, I just wanted to see how good I was compared to some of the other security testers out there, right? Like, not a bragging thing, I just want to always be getting better, right? And this impetus really is what I hear a lot from the researchers, right? Uh, they like seeing where they rank, they like getting better, they like hanging out with these people. And so the gamification and the community that builds around it uh, is a really powerful piece. So they'll, they'll still work on, you know, all types of programs. Technical challenge is another one, right? If it's an interesting target, uh, people will hack that, or if it's a powerful brand, people will hack that. Tesla's a very powerful brand and interesting technology, so they get a lot of attention and things like that. So uh, there's a lot of reasons, um, but a lot of them are just trying to supplement their income with the bounty stuff as well. That's probably the main one. So, yeah. so you obviously want people to hone their research skills to help companies out. So tell us about Bacardi University. Absolutely. Um, so for the past couple of years, we've been giving back to the security community by doing workshops and conference conferences, and um, my material was a deck called the, the Bug Hunters Methodology. And um, I had presented it at DEF CON and Black Hat and a couple of other places. And it's, it's my bug hunting methodology that helped me get to first um, and continue to hunt. And uh, just like, it goes over the newest advents in every little small area of your methodology for testing websites or mobile or IoT. So this deck got way too long to be part of any conference. It, you know, two hours of content and each, you know, slot is like an hour, right? So what we did is we decided to really amp it up. And so we took this and we turned it into a full-fledged training course. And the way we structured it was we said, all right, well, let's release the first part. And then also we want to do some analysis, some data analysis across the crowd and see where we can help them the most. So we have, if you think of a pyramid of researchers, right? We have researchers just getting into it at the bottom of the pyramid, which is QA testers who want to get into security, developers who want to get into security, uh, just people who are new to the industry you know, at all. And so we had a lot of survey data as around to what kind of questions they asked most commonly. So we made four modules to start off for that level of people. It's introduction to how to submit a bug, how bug bounties work, using common tools like Burp Suite is a very common tool that application hackers use. So we do a, a full workshop on getting started with Burp Suite. Um, and everything has labs associated. So it's really powerful there. And then we looked at, all right, what is the tip of the pyramid submitting? What are the critical bugs that are you know, basically making our clients really happy um, and that are very prevalent. Um, and for the ones that you can train for that uh, you know, aren't super special sauce, um, we, we basically make content for those so that the middle, peer, the middle tier of the pyramid we can train and bring up um, and have, you know, gain more opportunity you know, kind of doing this. So, um, so we released a whole bunch of modules and it's gonna be an ongoing project. I will continue to direct this project, make more topics, um, but it's open source and freely licensed. So, We've already had some people come with interest who work, you know, have worked places like MITRE and made security training for mobile reversing, right? And that's a skill set that a lot of people struggle to get into. And so we're really happy. We've already, I've already talked to a few people, and they're going to submit new content for Bug Crowd University as soon as we get back from DEF CON. So we want it to be this kind of viral open source training initiative. We want people taking it and presenting it everywhere that they can. It's open source. Um, I think it's a really powerful idea. I think that this level of content too uh, is not really seen too many places for free. This is you know pretty hardcore at that top level of the pyramid. 
uh, methodology, and so uh, I'm really happy to kind of release that to the community at large. Very cool. So Bug Crowd has been at this for a while, and I'm wondering how this relates to the actual ecosystem of researchers you see. I mean, you went in a little bit in depth there, but that pyramid that you're talking about, does that really define the skill levels that you're seeing, or is there an elite few that can do a host of everything at an elite level, while the majority have a certain concentration? Like, how does that makeup work within the pyramid? Yeah, absolutely. So there are target types usually that we associate to researchers. So um, many of our top tier researchers have the ability to probably do everything. Right? Uh, they're they're well seasoned pen testers or developers who just have a great security knowledge. Um, you know, the shirt I'm wearing right now, though nobody can see it, this is our researcher shirt, and it's a samurai helmet made of our uh, top 150 researchers. All their names are printed. To make a word cloud design. in a samurai a helmet. I like cloud, that. Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, and so <clears throat> these guys, you know, that are, that are represented on the shirt have wide, wide skill sets. Uh, so, you know, like, you know, a couple of our top hunters can do IoT, they can do websites, they could, you know, they probably, if they wanted to, they could sit down and do cars and stuff like that. But... Um, a lot of them like different specialties, so uh, it's really what they feel like doing, honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, we want to get people to that level where they have uh, skill sets to fill out our other programs, right? Uh, there are less um, less large crowds for certain very specialized skill sets, right? Reverse engineering is not something that everybody can do, right? Uh, so we want to train that. We want to get the other people up to that level. I'd love to learn a little more on how you've seen this all mature We've moved from calling it responsible disclosure to coordinated disclosure, for instance. Do you think that's the right way to describe what's been going on? Yeah, the the name for what we're doing, right, the idea that you can submit a vulnerability to a company, we've gone through a lot of iterations as uh, a security community, right? So coordinated disclosure, responsible disclosure, vulnerability disclosure, disclosure policy, uh, there's a lot of names. Um, so I think that we've kind of standardized on vulnerability disclosure program at BugCrowd, but we're not like the industry standard. That's just what we're using for our vulnerability disclosure programs. Um, but the evolution, yeah, I mean, came from from sites like, or from uh, not sites, but entities like Mozilla and Netscape and stuff like that back in the day, right? Um, and there were two options for disclosure back then. It was work with a company like that and find only things on that site uh, or on that uh, that company, or if you found a security vulnerability, never report it to anybody. Um, or disclose it on a mailing list like full disclosure, which caused a lot of this strife, this uh, this legal action to happen and things like that. So slowly but surely, we had large tech companies adopt um, VDPs or, or, RDP, or VDPs or uh, coordinated disclosure programs. Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Uh, yeah, Facebook and Microsoft are two of the biggest ones. Um, and so once the big tech companies kind of jumped on board people started getting an appetite for, yeah, this is a way better model. We need to find at least a front door for these people to report stuff, right? Because if you think about the alternative, uh, it's it's finding, you know, I'll give you a story from personal experience, right? Okay. So, um, so I always tell this one because I'm a gaming nerd, right? And I game a lot. Uh, and I went to go buy a pair of pretty premium, you know, headset for gaming, uh, you know, earphones. And so I go online and at the end of the checkout process, I can track my order. And in the URL was a number. Uh, that had my order ID. Um, now, if I just changed that number to something one lower than me, I got complete order details and personal information of the customer who ordered before me. Wow. And also their credit card information wow. because it was on the order purchase form. Um, so this company didn't have a responsible disclosure program. They had no security at email box. Uh, and so it, 
first it was a decision I had to make. Am I going to put myself at risk to uh, report this, right? And this is a decision every hacker is probably facing his, his or her life. Um, and then, uh, you know, I decided, yes, it's worth it. I use this company. I want them to know about this thing. And then I had to hunt down through LinkedIn and Twitter and their support page, which the support people really didn't know anything about security and didn't really route it very well. Eventually what got me through was direct messaging someone on LinkedIn. And I said, hey, I'm a respected security researcher. I have a, I have a really uh, I have a, a really real job. At, you know, at this time I worked at HP. Um, I'm just a user of your site. I found this thing. I'm just trying to get it to someone who can fix it. And eventually someone who was an IT engineer knew the security guy and was like, oh yeah, absolutely, I'll forward this. They got in contact with me and that's the best case scenario. But there's a lot of fear in that process, right? I was unsure what would happen even even after I had gotten the contact, right? They could have sent me uh, you know, a cease and desist. They could have instituted legal action. There's even cases where people uh, or people, you know, think that they responsibly d disclosed, and uh, the vendor's fine and super happy about the bug. And then six months later, because something else happens to that company, and someone else sees that some random person, somebody's, six months later, they'll, they'll institute legal action after you think the whole thing's taken care of. So anyway, so that's um, that's why we made the, the disclose.io project is just make sure that everybody has that that one place. And you know, Bugcrowd also hosts VDPs, vulnerability disclosure programs for everybody now. Uh, if they come to our platform. It's pretty much part of every package we sell. We think that everybody on the internet needs the front door. So that's, that's kind of where, where we're heading. Yeah. So with the companies that stand up the disclosure programs, how do you deal with companies who start a program but then get overwhelmed with the amount of bugs that come in and just ignore that inbox or don't know what they're doing and stop responding to researchers who are trying to submit bugs? Yeah, that's a common problem, actually. Like, uh, <laughs> We wouldn't exist if, if it was an easy problem to solve by yourself, right? Uh, what we offer and bring to the table is this platform and set of services uh, that takes away that pain, right? We redirect your security at email box to our platform. We let you embed a responsible disclosure page with our form on your page. We run uh, you know, a page on bugcrowd.com for your company. So these are now the front doors to re report security vulnerabilities, whether you pay for them or not, whether it's just disclosure or it's a bounty. Um, and then uh, all of that gets funneled to one place and you have a place to funnel things if you get it out of band. And then we have our services on the inside in the platform that works kind of like this awesome email box. Uh, for disclosure, very purpose-built for disclosure. Uh, and then you have our engineers on the back end, all of our customers get applied an engineer, uh, and they triage and validate everything. So the only things that really make it to a view when you log in as a customer are things that are not spam, they're not duplicates, they are uh, fully vetted, 100% valid security vulnerabilities that have risk associated to them. And so that's, well, that's what a lot of people refer to as noise, and so we're a platform that just offers you know 0% noise on the platform because we have this intermediary kind of extension of your security team sitting there helping you. Um, and that's, that's really been the value that we've, we've brought a lot, to, a lot to customers. They've had those email boxes and we take them over. We, uh, we do you know, projects to make sure that they're ready internally, internal processes ready to take over submissions uh, in the Bugcrowd system. We import all their submissions, relaunch it through Bugcrowd, um, and usually it's a pretty happy ending. They really enjoy the results. It's way more manageable. Uh, yeah, I mean, the email box full of hundreds of bug reports, if you're just taking it, you know, through Outlook or something like that, and you have maybe one guy part-time at your company who's trying to do a responsible disclosure program, it's, it's a lot of work. And it's, uh, it's a lot of complicated work because on the internal of the company, I've, I've been part of some, um, 
you don't know where these things go. There's multiple development teams. Like you have to go search out. It's like it's like playing like it's like herding cats basically to <laughs> figure out where these bugs go. Um, so multiple development teams. You know you have to fit the fixes for the bugs inside of uh, already slotted out engineering work. Right. Like do we fix this now or do we fix this in 30 days or have we decided that we don't care about this and we're not going to fix it all? Even that decision requires conversation, which takes people's time. So really, we want to bootstrap all of that for the customer, be a, like a trusted advisor, um, and let the platform help them make that very easy. And so we also have like integrations that'll take stuff directly into the development queue, which moves it closer to the developers. They can use JIRA tickets to assign these security vulnerabilities, and that makes things faster once they make a decision. Tell us about the most memorable vulnerability that you've seen disclosed. Uh, on our platform, God, there's been so many good ones. Um, so one of the ones I really liked, and I can actually talk about this one in detail because the customer let the researcher disclose it, so this is a good one. So um, LastPass is one of our customers, um, and uh, LastPass is a password manager you use in your browser, right? It stores all your passwords right. in a super encrypted store. And uh, one of our researchers figured out that um, the LastPass autofill um, was looking, uh, you know, looking to fill forms in with your LastPass passwords to help you make logins easy. Uh, he figured out that what the plugin did is uh, when, it, when you go to a page, the plugin looks at the URL and it says, um, I have a password for, uh, do I have a password for this site? So let's just say, for example, Tesla, right? TeslaMotors.com or Tesla.com, right? So it looks up, do I have a password for www.tesla.com? And it says, yes. All right. All right, let's autofill this box in um, that I know exists. It's a form. It looks like this with the password. One of our researchers figured out that um, it didn't have to be the actual site, uh, www.tesla.com. Just www.tesla.com had to exist in the URL. So I could host a page like bugcrowd.com slash www slash Tesla or slash wow. Tesla.com. Okay. Wow. And, and if I put the same form up and I would copy the HTML from the Tesla site, it would fill in my password. So he could create a phishing site that uh, LastPass would automatically fill in the form box for and steal the passwords of people. Um, that was that was a pretty ingenious one. It's you know, it's not a it's not a hack that had like a lot to do with any uh, verbatim thing that they teach you in like a wasp or anything like that, right? It was a very creative and um, very contextual based vulnerability for LastPass, and I, I thought that one was awesome. His his name was with Matthias, and he's uh, he's from Sweden. He's an awesome tester. He's in our top fifty. So very very cool. And with the uh, the Tesla example, there mm -hmm. it leads us into our last question. Normally, we like to end on a random question that goes outside of technology, but with the noise that has happened at uh, DEF CON with Elon Musk uh, yeah. coming to Vegas. I know that you were in the room when Elon had his Q&A. So uh, I wanted to pick your brain about what went on in that room and what was that like and what did he have to say? Sure, so um, so they, they had a pretty last minute reception for uh, security researchers and uh, basically services around security of vendors who help them at Tesla. and. Uh, and I think at the last minute, Elon, you know, got some emails and probably said, yeah, I just want to go and do this thing. So they came in. We were having nice cocktails. We were schmoozing all the researchers together, talking about our hacks. Um, a lot of the really popular researchers who have hacked the cars before, like the Keen team from China came. Okay. Uh, it was awesome. Um, and so uh, Elon came in. He, uh, he stood up on um, a table with the other engineering directors and the leaders of security at Tesla. Um, and he really proceeded to just thank us for all of the research that we've put into securing things. 
he talked about the future of how important it is uh, with things like rockets and satellites and you know uh, everything that Tesla is going to be into. Things that are going to shape the technology of the world are going to need security engineers, and and not just people who are finding bugs, but also building simple solutions that uh, that are secure by default. And so, really, he was just kind of thanking us for our work and um, you know our inclusion and uh, and you know. He stood up there, he talked for a little while, the engineering directors talked for a while, and then um, I, I think I can talk about this, I'm not sure they were in the room and it's probably going to get out, but Tesla just released a couple things, uh, modifications to their uh, scope for their bug bounty, basically saying, um, if you are doing good faith security research for a Tesla car uh, and you brick it, you break your car, uh, it'll be covered under warranty and they'll repair it for free. Oh, wow. Which is something okay. that they haven't done before, um, which really opens it up to a lot of people, right? Because, like, I want to buy a Tesla and that'll be my primary vehicle and I don't want to break my own car doing No, breaking in a $100,000 car is yeah. probably, I would probably bristle like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and then he expressed the want to. They haven't done it yet, but just to expand their responsible disclosure and bug bounty, um, bug bounty scene to everything. He wants to do it for everything. He wants to do it for all SpaceX, all Tesla, and so I imagine they'll ramp stuff up over the next couple of years to include everything, which is, uh, which is awesome, because we had so many diverse skill sets in that room um, that I think that you know, it will really run well. And the other thing he did was uh, they announced, uh, based on templates from um, Dropbox, ourselves, and Disclosed.io, and some other sources, uh, they added custom, uh, custom text to their brief for their bounty, um, or we're going to add it in the next week, um, that adds safe harbor to, to all of their programs. So they will guarantee not to pursue legally. I think that they probably would have done that a long time ago, but uh, you okay. know, we're just maturing in the space where people know that they have to do that, and that's actually like a cherry on top of an already awesome program. And so really a ton of big announcements. Um, you know, I was, I was fanboying pretty hard. I'm, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, m- me and Casey were sitting, uh, luckily, in the aisle where... Um, where people were coming in and out and uh, on bar stools, and when he was done, he came off, and uh, it was the only way for him to exit. So we kind of blocked him out, and we said, you know, we're, uh, you know, we've never met him directly. This is the first time we met him directly, um, and uh, we talked about the bounty for a couple seconds, and he was like, yeah, it's been an awesome tool. Uh, we want to do more. I uh, got to shake his hand. He was a really nice guy, and then, uh, you know, and then he left, and we continued the party, and it was, it was awesome. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm I'm glad you got the fanboy out. It sounds yeah. like you had a good time. Yeah, I did. So, Jason, appreciate you talking to us. Thanks for stopping by. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jason for talking with us. Greg, it seems like he really was a fanboy for Elon. I I get it. I get it. You know, Elon's done some great stuff, but uh, I'm sure that Elon could use the positivity. It's not exactly been a great few weeks for him. So. Yeah, uh, all the positivity that you can get, Elon, I'm sure you need it at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like his Twitter account got hacked there while he was at DEF CON. I think that he has been having a little bit too much fun on Twitter, so whether he was hacked or not, uh, whoever's in charge of it might need to put it away for a few weeks. So, <laughs> just, just another thought there. Um, before we go, I wanted to give a shout out to everyone we spoke with in Vegas last week. A lot of you have reached out about getting involved with the show, and we will have opportunities in the future. But even to those who said they listened or the new listeners we converted, thanks for rocking with us while we stand up this great new podcast. That's it for this week. Talk to you all next week, and as always, stay curious. Stay curious.